This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in the markets. Lauren Rublin is taking a much-deserved break, and I'm thrilled to welcome Barron's senior reporters Al Root and Nicholas Jasinski as we talk about falling markets, rising bond yields, and what's happening in the world of electric vehicles. Al, Nick, welcome. Hi, Ben. Hi, Al. Hi, Ben. Hi, Nick. So, after a strong start to the year, a tougher August was to be expected. But I'm not sure anybody thought August to be this tough. The S&P 500 has fallen about 4.8% so far, um, and that was through Friday. And the NASDAQ has dropped about 7.4%. And there have just been three positive trading days in August, not including today, 11 down days. How worried should we be, Nick? Uh, I mean, I think you said it, Ben. The indexes have been up for several months straight going into August. The NASDAQ returned 40% from the start of the year through July 31st. So it's fair to say some pullback was due for sure. And when you zoom out and zoom out a bit, take a longer term perspective, the situation isn't so dire as just the August performance alone might suggest. Mean reversion is a powerful force. So what's driving these declines then? Um, So I think it has more to do with the bond market than the stock market. Um, Bond yields are up significantly this month as well. Um, In particular, real bond yields, meaning the adjusted for inflation. the, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is at 4.3% today. That's up from around 4% at the start of the month. It's not a huge move in absolute terms, but for the bond market, that's that's pretty significant. Um, and the TIPS yield, um, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which is a proxy for the real yield, um, is, above four, is above 2% now for the first time since 2009. Um, so what's making bond yields go up? There are a couple of different things. Some of them are, are one-off technical factors. The U.S. Treasury has has been issuing more treasuries than normal this month after the uh, um, debt ceiling standoff um, uh, ended. The Bank of Japan is tweaking its monetary policy to allow yields to drift higher. That's having global effects. Um, You may remember on August 1st, the credit rating firm Fitch downgraded the U.S. sovereign debt rating. So those are a few technical things. Um, A lot of it also just has to do with fundamentals. The economy is quite strong. the uh, almost all the recent data on the job market, on retail sales, on housing, industrial production, all of that has been super solid. The Atlanta Fed GDP Now model, which um, uses incoming real-time data to uh, to predict what GDP is going to be for the current quarter, right now it spits out 5.8% annualized real GDP growth in the third quarter, which is crazy. Um, so, so this economic strength is a good thing. That's um, real, right? That's that's not nominal. That's real. That's the real GDP estimate, which is probably going to come down a bit by the end of yeah. the still a couple of months. Um, we would need to see the incoming data beating by as much as it has been over the past month for that to continue because it extrapolates trends as it's coming in. Okay. Um, but anyway, all this economic strength is is making people think that the Fed is going to need to either raise rates higher or hold them higher for longer. Um, and that's what's pushing up bond yields, um, which are causing real rates to rise. And, and that's pushing putting pressure on the stock market, higher real yields are 
actual attractive income that's an alternative to stocks so it's just greater competition and at the same time it's raising borrowing costs for for more companies um making it harder to to get financing um so that's a that's a headwind for the stock market yeah i mean i, I have to think those you know if you can get five percent on your money with almost no risk uh, that, i mean that's very attractive uh, i mean and even especially now that cpi at least has cut, dropped i think below that level at this point yeah, yeah i mean this oh, go ahead nick um, I mean, and, and as CPI continues to decline, if it does, then and the nominal yield stays the same, then the real yields continue to rise without the Fed having to do anything. Just as inflation goes down, real yields will go up if the, if the Fed holds steady. I'm sorry, Al, you were going to say something. I was going to say there's 5.6 trillion in money market accounts now. So that's 5.6 trillion. That's earning 5% a year. So, I mean, you know, it's all related to one another. Everything's, everything's connected, but that's, uh, you know, do the math quickly, $250 billion in, in income for people that uh, they weren't getting before. And if you want to be a bull, then, you know, eventually that money should find its way back in equities and bonds and things like that. But, but right now it's not. I mean, right now this is $5.6 trillion that is not going into stocks and is not helping to push those prices up. Yeah, and exactly. And then it's, it's also just providing support for things like uh, uh, retail sales and consumer spending, which has been surprisingly resilient. And probably part of the reason why, you know, things like a trillion dollars in credit card debt doesn't really doesn't really fluster anyone, practically speaking. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that uh, is, I shouldn't say shocking, uh, it makes sense. But the other thing that uh, seems to stand out is that you have really so much disagreement among market observers about where we are now. Um, seeing that Goldman Sachs had said, hey, this pullback is a buying opportunity. They said this over the weekend. And then Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, who's been bearish, though admitted he was too bearish, but he's still bearish, comes out and says, you know what, we're, we're, this, is the, this is a pullback that uh, you're not going to want to buy. Like, why is there this kind of disagreement? It's kind of the, the story of the year um, where, where there's just, in, in the, especially in the short term, you can make equally convincing arguments for, for momentum to continue to the downside now or for some mean reversion and a bounce after a few bad weeks. Um, it's just that the, the incoming data and indicators, either they, they, they don't all point in one convincing direction or it's you get this good news is bad news effect where the good data actually maybe it means something bad for the Fed policy, which then is bad news. And, and so it's just such a muddled mixed picture. And that's really been the case since the start of this year. It's a, it's a weird cycle, and I'm not surprised that two very smart people can draw totally different conclusions. I'll add a third one, Wells Fargo, Chris Harvey. Um, he's, he's incrementally more bullish, but he's saying kind of not quite yet. Um, we'll get there, but it's not quite the time to buy the dip yet. Um, I think trying to time it is a little tough, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's emblematic of, of this entire year, I think, that you can have equally smart people looking at the same data and drawing totally different conclusions. Well, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, which one of them is right? Where is it going, Nick and Al? Uh, Actually, let me go to Al first, because Nick, you've been talking all this time. Al, where's the market going next? Uh, so uh, you make me answer. I say it's going up. I mean, I don't think things are terrible, right? The economy is in reasonable shape. Yes, we're still seeing rates rise. Um, you know, I, I agree with everything Nick said about the, the August move, right? You just see bond yields move up. We were all so optimistic. At the end of July, you know, basically anything that happened would have taken some froth out of the market. So we got a bond yield move and, and we got strong retail sales. So, you know, good news was bad news and we all sold stocks for a while. But if you think about you got the theme of AI, you have a reasonable economy. Uh, um, the, the market's not as expensive as it was uh, after the recent sell off. It, so I, I don't really see anything disastrous on the horizon. 
So keeping in uh, keeping with this idea that I always think everything is eh, pretty much okay, I think the market will be fine. You, you are that rarity. Than... Yeah, I mean, you are that rarity at Barron's and optimist about financial markets. Um, Nick, what about you? Uh, is Al right or wrong? Um, I, I think that market is, the S&P 500 is higher by the end of the year. Um, I'm not in the business of making calls this week or next week necessarily on what the market is going to do. No, that's um, my job. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that by the end of the year, um, we'll have this Santa Claus rally and people are going to be looking forward to 2024 and beyond. I think the economy will still be in decently good shape um, and inflation will be lower and we'll be looking ahead to the Fed lowering interest rates at some point and people will be pricing uh, stocks based on that. Bond deals, I think, will be lower. So I think higher by the end of the year, but I can't tell you if that's going to be next week that we turn up or in two weeks or in three weeks. I'm actually glad you brought up inflation because uh, we did have a question from Randy. I wonder which Randy that is, but um, Randy says, I'm guessing you'll cover this, but I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on inflation over the next 12 months and what this would mean for treasury uh, and for treasury yields and for interest rates. Um, and, and so Nick, you, you see inflation continuing to drop. Yeah, I think that um, everybody has come around to um, it's going to be a, a long, slow decline for inflation. It's not something that by the end of the year, we're going to be back at 2% and hunky-dory. Um, I think we'll probably be above that 2% target for, for some time still. Um, but the, the hard work on inflation, um, or I should say that the biggest part of the move from, from 7 8 9% to, to 3%, that's, that's behind us. And now it's, it's the slow decline that will depend on how the job market holds up. Um, and some things like housing, which just takes a while to, to show up in the inflation numbers because leases are signed on an annual basis um, and uh, the, the housing sales take a while to, to complete. So that's just a slow process. It's not like uh, gas prices, which can be updated day to day at the pump. Um, so the, these last categories of inflation, which are still pushing the number up, are just going to take a long time to come down. But, but it's, we're, we're making progress that way and I expect that will continue. Right. I mean, all this, of course, matters for Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell, who's set to speak uh, at the Jackson Hole uh, Conclave on Friday. Um, and I know the markets are pretty concerned about what he is going to say. Um, there's precedent from last year. He sunk the markets that we're really expecting him to be dovish. He wasn't. Um, markets tanked. Um, bottom ended up waiting till October to bottom. But do you think um, Powell's going to make it better or worse when he speaks this Friday? Um, well, we're in a very different place than we were a year ago at Jackson Hole. Um, last year, inflation was accelerating. Economic indicators were slowing. Now inflation is slowing and the economic data is pretty much as strong as ever. Um, I, that doesn't mean, I don't think Powell is going to declare mission accomplished on inflation. I think he'll, he's gotten quite good at keeping his cards close to his chest and, and leaving maximum flexibility for the Fed in, in his recent remarks. Um, one of our economics writers, Megan, uh, said that he, she described his last press conference remarks as that, that he was tap dancing, which I think is a good way to put it. I think he'll probably do something like that again, tap dance, not say anything strongly in one direction or the other. Um, but actually for the stock market, I think that could be a boost. Maybe I do think that, that we're close to the bottom after all. Um, if he successfully says nothing of substance, or, or let me put it this way, I, with the rise in bond yields since the last FOMC meeting, I don't expect him to say anything that's incrementally hawkish. So I think he'll be either neutral to dovish, and that'll be more than enough for the bulls after three or four down weeks for the market. And I think that could be a positive catalyst for the stock market. Yeah, coming out of Jackson Hole, uh, Dow Jones market data ran a study 
uh, you basically Jackson Hole tends to be a positive catalyst for stocks. So last year, you're right, Ben, it was terrible, mostly for tech stocks. Um, the NASDAQ was down about 11% three months after Jackson Hole. But on average, you're looking at about 3% gain three months after Jackson Hole. And uh, the market's gone up eight of the last 10 years post Jackson Hole. So it usually, that's sort of like argues for Nick's setup, right? Like people get so bearish and they worry. And then he comes out and he says whatever. And people say, huh, it's not that bad. And you have to think with real yields at 2% that now we're starting to see some, you know, that tighter economy that, uh, uh, or, or the tighter, and the tighter policy that uh, the Fed has wanted, that uh, tighter, you know, less money out there for people. That real yield is kind of a sign of that, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we haven't had, I mean, I, I mean Nick probably knows better than I, but 2% real yields, like um, real yields, of course, being, you know, say the 10 year, or the five year, whatever you want, minus the inflation rate. So basically your bond coupon payments are, are either keeping up or making you richer, uh, but real yields, that's like, uh, that's like something new. We're not actually used to, to having our savings or money market accounts make us richer. We all just park it there and slowly, slowly get poorer over time. Yeah, my kids amazing. do that for me, but uh, <laughs> yeah, my kids do that for me, but for everybody else, uh, you know, real yields are very positive. And I, I, I vaguely remember those days uh, from when I was uh, much, much, much younger. Um, so Al, I know this uh, this may sound controversial, but you were telling me earlier that you actually don't think Powell's the biggest event this week. You actually think it might be NVIDIA's earnings, um, which are due, I can't even remember what day. What I do you expect Wednesday afternoon? That? Yeah, Wednesday afternoon. So why, why are you watching NVIDIA? Why do you think it's more important? Well, so, you know, to build my case, hopefully I'll be attacked by you and we can debate. Um, uh, we have the big seven stocks have accounted for, I don't know, 75% of the gains in the market. Uh, last quarter, um, you know, NVIDIA was supposed to do 6.5 billion in sales. They did 7.2. That was great. But remember, the market was forecasting about 7 billion in sales for this quarter. And they came and they guided for 11 billion. So it was an incredible beat and raise uh, and it was all AI and it kicked That's, off this idea that AI is just, this is the next, you know, dot-com-esque cycle for us all. And so if you're believing in the big seven stocks and that they can continue to drive gains of the market, you should probably pay just as much attention to NVIDIA than you do Jerome. It's Jensen versus Jerome. I'll go with Jensen. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the, uh, I mean, that was kind of the beat end all beats, but also begs the question of what do you do for an encore when you have just guided from 7 billion and change to 11 billion? Well, I would say you definitely have to, to beat the, you know, so you guided for 11, so you got to beat 11. Uh, now people expect the following quarter, which they typically guide for 12 and a half billion in sales, probably got to do better than that. So it takes the classic beat and, you know, beat expectations for, for the coming quarter. Um, you know, what the stock does, who knows, because, you know, it was, it went up 24% the last time it reported, it closed at 379. Uh, it became a trillion dollar stock. Uh, it hit 480 and, you know, Nvidia opened the week at about 433. So it's been all over the place. So you see volatility in that stock, but if the momentum in AI continues to build, it should be good. Right. So always, you know, take with a grain of salt, whatever the stock market does on one or two days after. But if the direction is still positive, you know, that's a good thing for the big seven stocks, if you ask me. I, I agree. I think that, that the NVIDIA numbers are going to matter for a lot of other stocks besides just NVIDIA. 
um, because that's that's where the actual, in the near term at least, the actual money coming from this AI investment has shown up in NVIDIA's numbers. Um, so that's been like a proxy for the growth of AI as a business um, um, overall. And I think that uh, that if that slows, that's not great for a lot of the other stocks which have risen on AI hype that hasn't been has been well ahead of any financial um, results for, for for a lot of those other companies. You know, Nick, I suppose that, yeah, I suppose, Nick, that's a great point. Like, if they have, like, terrible numbers and say, like, oh, whoops, it's, you know, AI orders have, draw, have dried up, that would be a disaster. But two things. One, I don't necessarily think, you know, one quarter is the end of the trend. So, you know, we're early in the AI cycle for NVIDIA. And then everything that Tay, our colleague Tay, has written and things like that, uh, you know, and it's just like, you know, sold out, you know, nobody can get chips, uh, AI demand off the chart. So, like, I'm just reading Baron's coverage, and I and I can't imagine it's going to be a bad quarter. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing would be if they can't make enough chips quickly enough. Um, but uh, we'll we'll get a chance to see when they they report. So let's turn. I mean, I'm kind of amazed that earnings season. We still have something to talk about, even though earnings season is pretty much done. Um, and I want to turn to uh, we have uh, a housing stock, a, a home builder reporting. That's Toll Brothers. Um, it's up fifty percent so far this year. And even Berkshire Hathaway has been buying uh, home builder stocks. So Nick, tell us what are we expecting from Toll Brothers, which specializes in making high end homes, when it reports earnings on Tuesday? Yeah, this is another way in which this is a weird cycle. Um, just looking at the home builders, I mean, you'd expect mortgage rates seven year. The 30-year average is is a mortgage rate is above seven percent now. Um, you'd expect that to have a negative effect on the housing market and prices and home building stocks, but it has not. Um, and that's really a function of of uh, there's just low supply of homes for sale because um, everybody who got a mortgage in the past decade basically is looking at the the, the new mortgage rates and saying hmm, maybe I'll sit on my two or three percent mortgage a little longer rather than trading up for a 7% mortgage and buying a new home. So there's just not a lot of houses on the market. And so those people who are in the market looking for homes are having to pay up. And so prices are, are holding in there. Um, Toll Brothers, um, I mean, results are expected to be quite good. The consensus is for $2.84 earnings per share, which would be up from two thirty-five dollars a share last year. Um, and uh, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're particularly well positioned because um, they, like you said, they tend to focus on high-end homes and those more affluent buyers tend to be less rate sensitive. They tend to pay more in cash and finance less of the purchase. Um, so those, those buyers are even less rate sensitive than, than for the overall market. Um, you mentioned Berkshire buying some home builder stocks, not just Toll Brothers, but a couple others. Um, the purchases weren't huge. And our, our colleague, Andrew Barry, um, who's been covering Berkshire forever, he believes that it was probably Todd or Ted behind it, not not Warren Buffett. Um, those are the, the guys who manage a portion of, Equi of Berkshire's uh, equity portfolio. Um, still, it's a it's an interesting time for home builders. Um, I don't know if I would be chasing the stocks here, um, but the, uh, the the earnings and the fundamentals are quite good, given uh, despite where we are in this interest rate cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing we've been talking about in the newsroom is just this fact that, like, if you're a home owner. Like, uh, you know, if you, it, it, it's, it's a hard market to be in because you're kind of stuck. You know, you can't go, uh, you know, you could sell, but where are you going to go? And if you're a, a home buyer, it's hard because you can't, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay through the nose and have a higher interest rate. But if you're a home builder, this is great because they have all this flexibility that uh, nobody else does. They can offer incentives. They can do all kinds of things. Um, 
And this is really working for them right now, which is kind of strange given where uh, yields are. Um, What's also helped this year is the um, last year there, like every company we're dealing with, with really high um, increases in labor costs. There were shortages of lumber and other building materials. Um, and that's kind of come down, not necessarily come down, but the year over year change in, in cost is much less than it was a year ago. So the numbers look better on the margin front as well. And, and now you were saying that you have a friend who was trying to buy a house and had a kind of a tough experience with it. Well, I mean, it's just so in my neck of the woods, which is, you know, Northeast, uh, there's very low inventory. So we're 7% mortgage rates, right? So, you know, we're no different than anybody else. Uh, inventory is very low. Uh, everybody wants prices to come down, but um, just by virtue of no inventory, when anything comes on the market, it still gets snapped up in, you know, five days, 10 days. My, my friend's trying to buy a house. Uh, he, he saw it. He basically bid the day he saw it. He made an above market bid. He lost and he is the backup offer. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. And so he's trying to get out of apartment into a house and he can't find anything in his price range. And when he does, he loses. I mean, it's almost incredible. He, he like shakes his head and says, I'm doing this. I'm going to pay 7% on my mortgage, but I still want to move and he can't find anything. So uh, uh, housing is stubbornly resilient. And I always think it's that inventory uh, and the, uh, you know, the lack of inventory and people wanting to move that sort of uh, modulates price declines. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it does feel like people, you know, home, people who don't own homes are still looking for that opportunity and people have to move. I mean, that's, it's just that simple sometimes. Okay. So let's turn now to another group of two stocks that are reporting. They're Former COVID favorites that have fallen on hard times, Peloton and Zoom Video. Um, Nick, can you tell us what's going on with these guys? Can investors expect to turn around in, in them at any point? <laughs> I mean, these are pretty ugly charts. I wouldn't expect them to, to regain their late 2020 uh, highs. Peloton in late 2020, this is a $160 stock. Now it's below seven bucks a share. Um, I mean, this is really, this is the poster child for investors extrapolating these COVID trends that were just not sustainable. Um, the, this quarter, they're forecast to lose 40 cents per share. Um, that would be better than the 79 cent per share loss they made in the last quarter. Um, but it's, I mean, this company has yet to re reach profitability. There are new competitors that have cheaper or better bikes and treadmills with, with different features. Um, so they've had to cut costs. Um, meanwhile, inflation has hurt their supply chain uh, expenses. Um, I mean, I, I know people who have Pelotons. They tend to be very happy with them and are loyal to the brand. And they're good um, bikes. They're good bikes. Um, but the the just these trends that were being extrapolated in late 2020 that, I don't know, 20% of households, I'm making up the number, but the, there were some crazy numbers out there that, that everybody would have a Peloton. And that was just not reasonable. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's um, more like everybody who wanted a Peloton probably bought one during the pandemic. That's when I bought mine. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was, and it's, it's a great thing to have. I and mean, they have other classes as well, but it's still, as you pointed out, they extrapolated a lot. And they also went ahead and spent a ton on building more bikes when they didn't need to. Um, it's a it's a great product. It has yet to show that it's a great business. And um, the stock had no business being at $160 when it was. Um, Zoom, uh, which you mentioned, it's another COVID darling. Um, this one is a better business. They've been net income and free cash flow positive for a couple of years now. Um, there's, their problem is really with growth now. Um, Google, Microsoft, others have competing uh, products. Most of us are back to the office more, so we're using Zoom and, and video chat a little bit less. 
Um, so it's just, it's not, it's not the growth stock that it once was. Um, for this quarter, consensus estimate is a dollar and six cents in earnings per share, which would be up a penny from dollar and five cents a year ago. And two years ago in the first quarter of, of uh, this is their fiscal first quarter of 2021, the company earned a dollar and 36 cents per share. So it's gonna earn less than it did in the same quarter in 2021 on a smaller revenue base. Um, at least I will say it's not priced anywhere near like a growth stock anymore. Um, right now it's around $67 per share, which is 15 times forward earnings. Um, in late 2020, this was at almost $600 a share and it traded for a basically meaningless PE in the somewhere in the thousands. Right. Um, so the, uh, the valuation has come down to, to match the fundamentals. Um, the problem right now is really just with the business and, and getting growth and earnings growth to come back. Right, and, and it seems like the stock needs some sort of catalyst that it's not getting right now. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what that is. It's a little funny that, you know, when these stocks, the market can make you think something about a business, right? Like we group Zoom and Peloton together because they were unbelievable and now totally disastrous but one one seems to make money one doesn't it's one, one's you know, a bit it's like the market this i know but the market sort of decides you know oh it must be terrible business look at the stock but you know we did it to ourselves kind of thing yeah no, that's yeah. a good point all right so i want to turn to electric vehicles because al you're with us on this call and you're our ev expert and i want to start with tesla because everybody loves talking about tesla the stock had a six-day losing streak uh, through Friday, and it looks like that might be ending today. But what's been going on? Why has Tesla been under so much pressure after doing so well to start off this year? Yep, I, we have to EVs every time I show up anywhere. That is in the contract. The things that have been going on for Tesla, three things. One is, I mean, we talked about it. The market was down seven month to date coming into, the NASDAQ was down seven uh, coming into Monday trading. Uh, for uh, August, uh, Tesla tends to be, you know, one and a half, two times more volatile than, than the broader market. So, you know, market goes down seven, Tesla goes down 10. That basically is not an unexpected outcome. But uh, there are some fundamental problems. One is uh, China, price cuts for EVs accelerating in China. You could call it a war, uh, including Tesla. We have about 25 price cuts in August so far on uh, EV models. Uh, encompassing about 10 EV makers, including Tesla. That's a lot of price cuts. Price cuts I mean worse profit margins. And then the 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 the, the third part of that is um, there's really two more. Well, Elon is also partly responsible for this, right? Because he was saying he keeps saying on public forums like his earnings conference call that, hey, listen, I don't really care about profit margins or price. I want to drive volume. That's great. It's a strategy. However, I think just if you look at the stock price, you can definitively say that wigs investors out. Um, and, you know, Lee Auto has better profit margins than Tesla now. Uh, Toyota uh, has a better operating profit margin than Tesla now. So it really just wigs people out. And then, uh, you know, the Chinese economy has started to frustrate people. So it's like between pricing the economy and the NASDAQ, uh, you really, I mean, it's just been a perfect storm for uh, Tesla investors who, you know, are crying into their coffees because now they're only up 80 or 90 percent year to date. So, so let me ask you, is this what's going on in China? Is this a EV problem where there just isn't enough demand for all the EVs that are being made? Or is this a China problem where the economy is under pressure and people are just don't want to spend money? Or is it both? 
Well, EV data points for me. Uh, so Chinese EV sales, uh, which includes the way they we can break it up for people, but it includes both plug-in hybrids and all battery electric vehicles, all battery electric vehicles, about two-thirds of EV sales in China. They're going to be up about 30% year over year in 2023 compared with 2022. Uh, EV penetration in China will run in or the 30% of our new car sales. Uh, um, so demand is fine. Uh, however, you know, demand is always only one portion of the equation. There's a gazillion EV makers in China. One of the things we've really seen this year, and this will be my last EV data point uh, for China, is that um, you know the big are doing well. So China BYD or uh, excuse me, Tesla BYD in China are crushing it. Everybody else is just you know just trying to get scraps. Uh, they're having trouble getting volume growth. There's a lot of producers over there. The market sort of is is uh, it, it you know so just a growing market hasn't led to success for everybody. Uh, there's been a bit of a shakeout. Now the economy, like Evergrande, just filed for bankruptcy. People are worried about the property market and everybody's wealth is tied up to property. Maybe that's a really bad thing. I wish I could tell you I knew exactly what was going on in China. I will pass it to Nick to try and get him to tell you. But like, I'm just not over there. I just read what everybody else reads and now people are worried about the Chinese economy. Yeah, it's uh, pretty scary thinking about uh, you know the, how, how much slower their economy is growing right now than we've been accustomed to. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not over there either. But observing from afar, um, China just has not had that post-lockdown rebound that we saw in the U.S. and Europe and and other markets. And I think um, some of that has to do with the problems with the property sector, um, but also from the conversations with economists, it's it's China didn't do fiscal stimulus the way that the U.S. and many other countries did. Um, these helicopter payments to consumers, so consumer balance sheets just are not as strong. Um, that that uh, pent up savings that are get released once people are able to leave their homes. Um, and at the same time, with property values dropping, that's the wealth effect. Um, the, the real estate makes up a larger share of household wealth in China than it does in the US, um, larger share of GDP as well. So people are getting poorer, actually, and that's leading them to not get out of their homes and start spending like they did in the US and in Europe. Um, so I think this is another case of expectations getting ahead of reality where everybody expected the Chinese consumer to start spending with abandon as they did in the US and, and, and Europe after lockdowns were lifted. And that just has not happened. So you have this sluggish consumer with a property Seems sector like. that's that's falling and uh, and that's leading to pretty sluggish economic growth in China right now. Yeah, a few people like to shop the way Americans do. All right. I want to ask you, Al, mm -hmm. what happened with VinFast Auto? Um, the Vietnamese EV maker that went public last week. That move well, was insane. Yeah, we were partnering, partying like it was 2020 again. So the stock, what was it up? 255%. So first of all, and, and I know Nick will comment on this, but it was, a, it was a merger with a special purpose acquisition company. SPACs are back, baby. Well, sort of, there's one SPAC. But all that happened at the beginning of last week was the, the stock symbol changed from BSAQ, Black Spade, Black Diamond Spade, Black something, doesn't matter, it's gone. Trade changed to VFS, VinFast, because the merger was complete. They announced the merger was complete. People expected the merger. And the stock went up 255% because I don't know why. Um, and that, of course, what does that do? It gives us a chance to, you know, it was worth, at the peak, after day one closing, it was worth, on an enterprise value basis, more than BYD. So BYD is one of the most valuable automakers in the world, has the most market EV market share in China. 
It's, you know, Warren Buffett owns it. It's the EV rival to, to, to Tesla. VinFast sold 11,300 vehicles in the first half of 2023, uh, you know, compared to, you know, a million 300,000 for, for uh, BYD. It was worth more than BYD. Why? Is it any just, can you go through any math to justify it? Not really. I mean, you basically have to say it'll be as big and as profitable as BYD in five years, and then you could justify paying that price for it. I, I actually, you know, why do SPACs do this? I have my own theories. Um, it's fun to watch. I wouldn't, you know, officially, I, I think that people should avoid it. You know, if people want price targets, I wouldn't touch it till 10 if you were super optimistic. That was the deal the SPAC merger was struck at. I wouldn't touch it till five. Um, and we can get into exactly why, but, you know, like SPACs, I, I actually think that people, you know, almost forget that the merged entity, which is now VinFast, which is the combination of a SPAC, which had cash and, and a company, that the shares outstanding are now 2.3 billion. They look at the SPAC shares outstanding and they say, oh, there's only, uh, there's only 20 million shares outstanding. Oh, look, the market cap is $600 million. No, it's not. The market cap was like, 86 billion. So I don't know why it happens. It was fun to watch. VinFast, I wish them all the best, but the market has made it uninvestable. All right. Well, with that, we're running out of time. So I want to get to some reader questions. Um, the first is uh, from Vic. This is kind of a fun one. Um, what are the chances that AI replaces an economist? <laughs> I, I think there's a good argument to be made for AI replacing an economist. Um, it's it's just, very easy. All they have to say is on one hand, things could get great. And on the other hand, things <laughs> could get terrible. Look, I'm an economist. Right. Nick, what do you think? Um, well, I do have an economics degree, so I hope I don't get replaced. But um, <laughs> um, listen, I think that, that, um, that the AI that we have right now that's just based on backward looking stuff, um, it's, it's kind of the, when you get to the moments like today, when this time is different, um, what can AI do about that? But yeah. at the same time, economists, like Al said, are giving these answers where on one hand this, on one hand the other. So are economists even that valuable of a thing for AI to replace? I don't know. Uh, we, we need them. I mean, it's, uh, they give us more data points to consider um, when we're trying to figure out this market. All right. So let's go to John and... Uh, Let's see, John wants to know our outlook for the remainder of the year for all asset classes. I think that's a bit too many. We talked about stocks. Um, what about bonds? Do bonds go up or down from here? Um, I think bond prices up, bond yields down um, by the end of the year, and I think stocks up. Uh, I, agree with Nick. Has, has to I agree with Nick, has to happen. If we, if we get the end of the rate hike cycle, eventually we've got to see uh, yields go down and prices go up. All right, and this one's from Kevin. Kevin asks, does the country's high GDP to debt ratio and high consumer and corporate debt affect your optimism for the stock market? Uh, I'll, I'll start. Oh, go ahead, Nick. You want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the GDP to the debt to GDP ratio for the country is one of those things that doesn't matter until it does. And, and uh, um, it's always going to be something that people can point to and, and say, oh, we're bankrupting the country. But as long as the GDP continues to grow faster than the uh, not that we're paying on interest. Um, I think it is sustainable for an economy the size of the U.S. Um, with the dollar as a world's reserve currency. There's a lot of, of uh, international, there's a lot of pool of capital to pull on for borrowing. Um, it's not something that keeps me up at night. 
uh, doesn't keep me up at night. And also, you know, I would just say like, you know, Google, Japan's, it, the one thing, it doesn't necessarily, it, it, of course it matters someday how much debt you have, but how rich you are also matters how much debt you can have and you can service. And we fortunately live in a very, very, very rich country. So it's like not existentially bad yet, but it's like, it gives us all something to talk about, I suppose. Yeah. And for me, it actually does keep me up at night because I'm the type of person who likes to lay in bed and think about all the things I can't control way out into the future um, that uh, are going to go wrong. And one of them is, you know, you think about the stock market in 10 years, and uh, I do worry that we end up looking at some point uh, as it being like a 1970s type uh, stock market, where it's just up and down within a range and the debt GDP is just one of those things that weighs on it. But so far, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, all right, let's go yeah, on. Ben, to, you, may, uh, you may want to talk to somebody about that. <laughs> yeah. I got these new headphones. They're supposed to help me sleep at night by playing these like nice little sounds. And you can actually sleep in them when you, if you're a side sleeper like I am. So I'll see if that works. Um, all right. So Fred asks, uh, is there a rigorous mathematically based model that leads to the idea that 2% is a natural rate of inflation? No, there is not. There is not. It's, it's a, just but it's a number pulled out of the air. I do want to add. I do want to add one thing, and because I get really, I mean, I, I I like to be Mr. Devil's Advocate, and you know, gold bugs and you know, inflation and deflation. Deflation is a disaster. Everybody should know it intuitively. Nobody wants prices to fall. The entire universe is organized that we can raise prices, things go up, cars get a little more expensive. I get a two percent, you know, I get a two percent, uh, you know, raise every year on average for ten years. The inflation is just built into the system. We are not built to, you know, see things flat and, you know, you know, my, you know, our debt balances, you know, get bigger as a portion of our income because our income went down because, you know, we only care about real yields. No, we need inflation is fine. Uncontrolled inflation is a disaster. Inflation that's beyond people's expectation is terrible. But if you really want to like, you know, go with the like, oh, inflation, it's engineered, it's terrible. We're all just disasters. Think about what like deflation is like, and then you'll be very, very happy that we have 2%. Well, 2% it is, it is a policy choice, though. So it's not a, it's not yes, a, it's it's a policy magic, choice. It's a magic number. Um, there yeah. are economists who argue for targeting nominal GDP growth, and, which brings in real GDP growth and inflation. So there's, there, there are different, it's, it's a choice. It's a choice, yes. But as Al yeah, said, but, but when, we don't want runaway when, inflation, we don't want deflation, something in between those two extremes is probably okay. All right, we're really running out of time now. Oh, fine. Sorry, Al, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut you off because I have two questions here that I wanna get to. Keith asks, is it better to look at individual housing stocks or an, a housing ETF? I mean, one requires more work than the other. That's all, one of the only things I have to say about that, right? Yeah. An individual housing stock is a bet on, you know, whoever the heck is running Cole Brothers. And a housing ETF is more about on the sector. So really, to me, my first thought is it depends on how much work you want to do. Right. I think your chances of getting it, uh, you know, your, your chances of making a big gain is probably bigger when you are going on a single stock, but also your chances of a big drop. And you definitely have to do more work there. Nick, do you have a thought on that? Um, I think if you like the if you like an individual housing stock, you'll probably like the ETF as well. The the, the stocks do move somewhat in in uh, in concert with each other. Um, that's my only thought. All right, good, good. All uh, right, let's go to, oh, Fred is uh, 
written some clarification. He didn't mean that there should be no inflation. He was just saying that uh, there's uh, someone actually I'm not familiar with Samuelson who says that inflation should be about 3.5. And I think that's the point, Fred, um, that that you were making is that this this number that we have is 2% being the natural rate. It, it's just pulled out. I don't want to say it's pulled out of the air, but they've just chosen that. And I don't think there's anything that says good inflation level has to be 2%, that it could be elsewhere. And things would be okay. It's that runaway or that deflation that really gets to be a problem. I think volatility in the inflation rate would also be an issue because you just don't know what to do at that point. All right, last question. What have rising real yields meant for gold? Ha, huh. uh, this cycle, pretty much nothing. Um, the, uh, the, the normal relationship between rising real yields and gold is an inverse one. Um, as, uh, as real yields increase, that's, that's more competition for gold, which is an unproductive asset. It pays no yield. Um, and at the same time, rising bond yields in the US tend to make the dollar stronger. So when there's a stronger dollar, an ounce of gold is worth fewer dollars. Um, not this time, since, since the uh, tips yield has gone from negative to 2%, gold has gone from about 1,600 an ounce to, where are we now, like in the high 1900s. Um, and I think that's a function of this uncertainty that's been a theme of this call and all the geopolitical tremors that are going on around the world that's just raising demand for gold, which is the safe haven asset, despite what's going on with the real yields. No, yeah, I, I, I agree want, with Nick. I'm going to point out, just because I like to do this, that August has been terrible for gold too, though. It's gone pretty much down almost every day, not quite every day, but almost every day, um, as real yields have risen and the stock market has dropped. So I think it's having a little bit, bit of an impact here. But as you pointed out, Gold has done really well since uh, November, I think, of last year. Um, and we'll have to see if it stays that way. And I think you're right. It's because of this uncertainty in the world that really makes things tough. All right. I think that are most of the questions. Um, oh, Gabriel just wanted to comment. He says that there is an excellent book called The Price of Time. Highly recommended. We'll have to check that out. So that's all the time we have for today. Nick, Al, thank you for being here. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us. Join Barron's Live tomorrow when Barron's Managing Editor Darren Fonda and Nicholas Colas, co-founder of Datatrek Research, have a discussion on how to find bargains in today's market and where to invest. Thanks for listening. Stay well and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.